Hello and welcome back to the London Magazine podcast. I'm Jamie and I'm joined as always by Lucy. Lucy, how are you? I'm very well. Hello everyone. I'm, I'm Jamie. Also delighted to be joined by our guest this week, Ella Griffiths. Ella, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. <laughs> it's good to have you here. Ella, uh, for those of you who don't know, is an editor overseeing Faber's Classics, Heritage and Archive Publishing, most recently launching a new series of rediscovered literary gems called Faber Editions. We are so delighted to have her on the show. Before we start getting into exactly what Faber Editions is all about and chatting about some of the titles and your journey into being an editor and working with archives, we thought it'd be nice to get a little reading to, to set the context. So can you tell us a bit about the introduction you'll be reading? Um, it was published in our February-March issue of the magazine. Uh, yeah, so please take it away, Ella. Uh, well, yeah, thanks for having me. This is a piece that Claire Louise Bennett wrote uh, as our foreword to The Shutter of Snow by Emily Holmes Coleman, a 1930s novel, which we can talk a little bit about later. Uh, and that's gone into our favourite edition series um, this year. And I just wrote a little kind of forward to the forward yeah. <laughs> for um, the London Magazine's issue uh, recently. And we thought we'd start with that to kind of contextualise a bit what we're uh, talking about today. Absolutely. She must recall everything. When the last itemised syllable was told, it would all be over. No one would understand until that had happened. And at that moment, all the graves would be flung open and all the lovers would love. Sometimes a voice speaks to you across the centuries with an impact that you'll never forget. It was while launching a new series, spotlighting radical literary gems from history, that I first read these lines and soon became obsessed with this extraordinary novel. I'd been hunting in Faber's 90-year archive for overlooked books when I came across Emily Holmes Coleman's name in relation to Juna Barnes, author of the 1936 modernist classic Nightwood. Born in California in 1899, Coleman had moved to Paris in 1926 with her husband's son after graduating from Wellesley College. It was while working as society editor for the Paris Tribune and as secretary for the anarchist Emma Goldman, as well as writing her own poems, stories and essays, that she met Juna Barnes through the city's now legendary expat literary circles. Barnes and Coleman met again in 1932 while staying at heiress Peggy Guggenheim's English country estate, where Barnes wrote most of her experimental novel. Coleman was later instrumental in the publication of Nightwood, after rejections by several publishers, personally persuading the poet and favourite editor T.S. Eliot to acquire what would then become one of the century's most iconic books. If human art can draw blood out of a stone, I will draw interest from Eliot, Coleman says in her letters. Dazzled by this feat, I began researching Coleman and was fascinated to learn about her own novel from 1930. Inspired by her experiences being confined to a New York mental hospital with postpartum psychosis, after the birth of her son in 1924, the Shutter of Snow plunges us into a unique ecosystem. Some days, the protagonist, Martha Gale, believes she is God. Others, Jesus Christ. Her baby, she thinks, is dead. There are voices talking in her head. Her fellow patients shift between being friends and enemies. When her husband visits and shows her a lock of her baby's hair, she doesn't remember, yet, until she makes it upstairs, ascending towards release. Tragic and ecstatic, shocking and hilarious, The Shutter of Snow is a prose poem, a soul's howl, a confessional talking cure, a radical autofictional dissection of insanity and maternity. I'm confident that a new generation of contemporary readers will view it as a masterpiece, alongside totemic works exploring mental illness, such as Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper, Virginia Woolf's To The Lighthouse, Jennifer Dawson's The Ha Ha, Mary Jane Ward's The Snake Pit, Joanne Greenberg's I Never Promise You a Rose Garden, Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, and Ken Casey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But this was not always the case. On first publication in 1930, sales were small, and despite a few English champions like Harold Nicholson and Winifred Holtby 
reviews were wildly mixed. As the late editor Carmen Khalil says in her introduction to Virago's 1981 edition, the last to be in print in the UK, this reception was especially brutal in the US, where the reputation of American expats and their experimental prose aroused a considerable puritanical suspicion. For instance, the New York Post declared that it was difficult to see the point to Mrs. Coleman's book, with another reviewer stating that the gentleman reader cannot fairly be expected to work up a professional interest in a woman who picked up threads and ate them. It's a great honour to be proving that reviewer profoundly wrong nine decades on, with champions such as Lucy Elman, Ian Lee, Catherine Cho and Sinead Gleeson arguing for its vitality today. And, of course, Claire Lewis Bennett with her own foreword published in the London magazine to the shutter of snow as well. Thank you so much, Ella. Thank you, Ella. You mentioned that you came across Emily Holmes Coleman's name in relation to Juna Barnes, author of the 1936 modernist classic Nightwood. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Well, uh, it's one of Faber's kind of mm. most iconic uh, classics, I guess, Nightwood, and it's kind of got a cult cult status. So I often kind of look around um, Juna Barnes in the archive and uh, see what we've got relating to her. And I think it was... I think it must have been reading about uh, Elliot more specifically um, that Coleman's name came up in relation to how she persuaded him uh, to publish it. And I hadn't heard of her name before, so just went down a kind of online rabbit hole uh, looking at her amazing life. The Paris sections are amazing. Her dying in a community of nuns in New York was fascinating. And it kind of went from there, really. There's a, there's a great quote, I think it's in the Claire Louise Bennett foreword, where she talks about how she tried to persuade Elliot to publish it and what does she say it's something like you know if I if I say it's going to be published he will publish it or something along <laughs> exactly, those lines, exactly. it? it's, it's so perfect yeah, yeah I think she, she was a very passionate um, passionate champion I mean there's meant to be an amazing collection of letters between between Barnes and, and Coleman uh, that I'm desperate to read I haven't been able to get out of the library yet it's quite a tome but I think that would shed some light on more on that process I think Claire Louise Bennett who most of our listeners and readers will know from her work such as Pond and Checkout 19 um, she writes the foreword to this new edition how did Claire become to be involved in this project well um, I just reading the prose uh, the kind of prose style in in Coleman I immediately thought of Claire Louise um, in terms of her amazing amazing books um, and I just wrote her out of the blue and said look there's something I think you're really Find interesting. She never heard of the book and completely fell in love with it and was blown away by it. And then I suppose she just she kind of read it and spent some time researching. And her her forward is actually a fascinating historical um, insight as well as an appreciation of the the writing style in itself. Talking about Freud and psychoanalysis and female hysteria and kind of the nineteen twenties um, medical context around the, the shockingness of uh, of our protagonist being confined to basically a prison. Uh, version of a mental asylum so it's a really illuminating piece it's so strange that as you mentioned with, with freud right because a lot of these writers at that time, you know the, the paris expats the f scott fitzgeralds whoever were writing about freud in their work and yet as clearly as says in that in the forward none of that seems to have applied to to this situation it's it's such a yeah it's, it's a really tragic count that Louise gives as well isn't it it is, it is. Yeah. And I think that, um, uh, as she says, the, the gender binaries are really, um, yeah, really, really interesting. Well, thankfully, our views on mental illness have shifted a lot over the years since the original publication. So what do you think now this this new edition will will be able to, to bring to a contemporary audience? Well, I think, um, you know, Catherine Cho's memoir, Inferno, was a really amazing insight into 
a similar kind of you know postpartum psychosis, I suppose. And the bravery of people like that today writing um, nonfiction like that, I think, speaks to this book in a really interesting way. And, and by Catherine championing um, a book from almost 100 years ago, I think it just shows how things have changed, but also the experiences of women are not necessarily as as um, uh, as well responded to now as as they could be. Lucy Elman has a lovely quote where she says, um, uh, Coleman shows how women would write if we were free and how murderous would be. Mm. I love that. Um, I think that captures something about the, the voice mm. here. And what's also, you and Claire as well mention the reviewers, um, I think there was one review that, that said it was difficult to see the point of Mrs. Coleman's book. Uh, there's another one. Um, a gentleman reader cannot fairly be expected to work a prof- professional interest in a woman who picked up threads and ate them. And it just seems really shocking, this, this reception to the book. Like, why, do you think, why do you think it receives such a, a reception? Well, I think for all the reasons we, you know, we've said about the silencing of, of women and the fact that she is, you know, she's exposing quite a an intimate part of her life um, a, a really traumatic experience that even now i think it feels a, a very it's a shocking it's a shocking text to read um and i don't know i suppose you could say <laughs> i always think of that blake um it was a blake who just said you know genius is always ahead of its time and there is something about this being you know the fact that it feels completely radical now uh, in 2023 suggests that in 1930 it would have no one would have been able to take that in uh, i think there's something that feels almost so random that Nightwood could become this cult classic and it's taken almost a hundred years for this finally to be republished and, and get its due. Is it just, why do you think is it that some, some books manage to get that, that, that second life um, on their own and, and some need more of a push? Is it just one of those cases of it's really just luck? Well, there's always, it's an interesting thing in classics publishing because often you stand on the shoulders of kind of editors before you. So like mm. Carmen Khalil and, and the Virago team who, we published it in the eighties. That that was, you know, to me that's the, that's the first act of, of rediscovery. And then you know they slowly go out of print, and I guess probably by the nineties, people had forgotten about it then. And then so uh, in America, it was it had been in print, and you, you kind of build up a network of of, um, of kind of foremothers, forefathers who, who who are doing that work as well. So it's not just one kind of valiant uh, yeah. editor doing it. It's it's working with a network of, of really interesting. People in a community who are championing books like this. Um, I, th- I think why things get forgotten is, is an endlessly interesting question. Definitely, mm. um, I think there are structural reasons. I think you know, whether authors are American or English can can have a, yeah. an effect as well. Um, whether they're in print here or in America, I think yeah, there are a lot of very volatile factors that um, come into play. But it, it makes it a, a really rewarding job to be able to shine a light on some of them. To, to talk about favorite editions, then more specifically. And, and please correct me if I'm wrong on the dates here, but so you originally took on the editor role with the specific responsibility for classics and, and backlists and heritage publishing. Was that at the end of 2019? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then favourite editions as a concept was announced more recently in, in 2021. Can you talk to us a bit about what the process of coming up with it was like? What was the intention originally behind the concept? How did that all work? How did it find its feet? Um, yeah, well, it was it was it was an interesting process, I guess. Um, having a a ninety year archive like Faber's is is kind of overwhelming, yeah. <laughs> but but obviously amazing privilege to be able to go and kind of mull around and forage around in it. Um, and actually looking through looking through it, there were some disappointments and frustrations. A lot of rights maybe had been uh, lost or picked up by other houses. Um, on the other hand, a lot of our kind of big name house estates have been very well published, so so we're looking great. They didn't necessarily need any. Um, you know, kind of resurrection as such that they were they were they were in in good good fettle. Um, 
So then I thought, okay, well, let's let's see. Again, we had a, an old list called Faber Finds, and that had collected lots of interesting uh, rights as well. So I looked at, looked at those, um, and then just spent more time in the actual physical, um, lovely archive space. When, when I'm moving offices, but we had a lovely kind of, you know, lots of dusty stacks and, and things like that. So by spending time looking through what, what we had, that helped me form more of a clear image about what we could do in terms of a list. Um, and I've always felt very strongly that backlist as a word isn't very helpful. Um, <laughs> I think of myself as a, as a frontless publisher in some ways and that's what I wanted to do with this series is by only publishing for a year um, I like the idea that we can have a really great campaign lots of publicity um, I have a terrific marketing team who um, put so many resources and creative ideas and imagination into a proper yeah re- resurrection uh, campaign for, for these books and by doing fewer I think we can really launch them into the world with massive impact um, in a way that maybe a more canonical huge list can't can't quite give that space and oxygen to them I heard you describe it as heritage publishing with front list energy, which I think is just like such a great way of describing it. Is that was that like a really cool to the concept when you first started doing it? Like we are going to push these as if you know they were front list. Definitely, books, yeah. definitely. And I, I wanted to avoid actually words like classics, just just by calling yeah. them favorite editions. They can be things that are a little bit radical, things that maybe were too you know like we were saying back home and too transgressive or unexpected or unusual, whether in style or content for their time. And I think Faber has that kind of odd, you know, magical, literary, making it new kind of experimental quality to it. And, and capturing that spirit in a in a series like this um, has been, I think we're slowly working out what that spirit is and kind of getting there with each book. Um, but I think they're starting to become something people now know what a Faber Editions book might be. And um, that's something that I hope, you know, I love to hear ideas from readers and ideas from the classic community about what novellas especially they think might, might kind of suit the list as well. You mentioned Faber's 90-year archive. As soon as you said it, I just I have in my head this, as you say, this kind of dusty stacks and this big Victorian kind of wood-panelled room. What does the archive look like? How big is it? How is it even organised? Can you try and give us, our listeners, an insight into, you know, if they stepped into the archive room, if, if that even is how it worked, what would they be greeted with? Like I kind of hope there'd be like a cigar in one of these. Well, that, well that's what I'm thinking. I you know those, those globe drinks cabinets yeah, with like yeah. a, a decanter. With uh, loads uh, of gin and whiskey and there. And sherry. I think uh, Elliot did used to have a little sherry sherry uh, really? area. Yeah. Perhaps, but, um, I have not brought that back, which which maybe is an error. Um, no, it, it's yeah, it's, it's it was a lovely. Um, there's the kind of hexagonal table where. Ellie and the book committee used to sit around that still, you know, oh, wow. that still was in the archive and there are obviously stacks themselves looking out over, over Bloomsbury um, but what, what I find very charming about it is that it's organised by um, uh, letter so um, you have things like um, who being a word and you'd have a whole shelf of things saying <laughs> who or what oh, wow. and so you get some very serendipitous odd delightful uh, encounters <laughs> you probably do yeah. a found poem of all the titles and a hundred percent hundred percent i do spend a lot of time taking photographs of um, <laughs> weird neighbors on the shelf <laughs> we're starting to get a sense and, and readers are and the community is of, of what a favor editions book is and, and one of the things that I've noticed is is that the the design style is becoming quite iconic uh, already, and I, I love it. I love it so much. Is it um, Pete Adlington who is the the designer? He talked about it being. You, know, you looked back to the Faber paper covered editions from the nineteen fifties. Exactly. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because it is they look so lovely. All, all the covers do. Well, that's a credit to yeah, credit to Pete's kind of vision, and and, and now he's um you know commissioning individual designers to do to do the designs mm. um for each particular book, and he's got such a great. Uh, get a great network of people who I think are, they're, they're, as you say they're, they're fulfilling the style but also pushing it forward every yeah, single yeah. time um, and I yeah I've always wanted them to be beautiful beautiful objects that people want to kind of collect and mm. people want to have the whole series and I think 
yeah, with my team around me, they've made that happen. So, and, and production as well, you know, the way that people have reset the text, making beautiful um, settings and uh, the flaps. And I mean, every, every bit of, of, of the Faber uh, machine has, has come together to make them uh, really gorgeous. But no, yeah, so the, for, the, for the design, I think we liked, as I say, I wanted to avoid the, the idea of, of, of classics being kind of splayed over the front. And I like the idea of it being a bit more um, kind of accessible and quirky, just not necessarily defining what a Faber edition was on, on its cover. So then when I saw the, you know, I've always quite quite liked uh, those, those um, 50s, 60s paperbacks. Uh, and Pete and I were talking about, you know, the ways Faber had been imagined visually over, you know, over the last um, century. And yeah, we thought Faber edition as a strip was quite a nice way of keeping together uh, the series look. Um, in terms of design, again, I've always had a soft spot for that kind of kind of Volpe font and, and the, the woodcutty energy of mm of um, some old favourite books too. So Pete kind of reimagined that and put together a whole raft of um, ideas. And I think what's come out is, is starting to become, yeah, quite a, so nice that you say they like it, but I hope it's becoming a bit, a bit of a, a, a classic look for them. I think because, it is, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting because at the magazine as well, I, I know our design has changed significantly over the years, but the last few years we have made a conscious effort to look back at, editions from the 50s 60s this very clean clean design it had then and to reincorporate parts of that back into our look now so i think there's yeah there's a lot to be said i think about looking back at past designs i think i think looking back in order to to look forward is always the kind of um same with the list yeah yeah not not just you know going into into the past but finding a way to think about the future through them i think is a really fun way yeah. of, of thinking about would you like to tell us a bit more as well about other titles that are featured on, sure, on the sure. favorite editions list well there's a whole um <laughs> how, what, do i have a favorite one um i was going to say I, I promise not to interrogate you before the this podcast but i'm sure it's like picking between children if you, yeah, ha- exactly, if you had to exactly. pick one but if you had to and we said you know a secret favorite yeah, do secret you have favorite. a secret favorite oh i don't know i don't know if i can say a secret favorite I th- oh, well, well I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about one that's coming up because that okay. that is um that's a proper proper old school mole Faber experience. <laughs> okay, go on. So please. I was I was without my cigar and without my whiskey <laughs> in, in the archive. Um and um yeah, kind of just looking at the shelves. And this really odd little thin, dark, dusky, grey and red book popped up and it had a, a mushroom cloud on the cover and a really haunting, um, kind of shadowy photo on the front. Uh, and it was called Tamush and I thought that's such an interesting word. What does that mean? <laughs> Uh, by a, a Danish man called Sven Holm and I sat down with it and read it in about an hour and it, it's turned out to be this eerily prescient kind of prophetic dystopia a little bit um, kind of white lotus-y uh, in a post-apocalypse world it's, it's a luxury hotel where all of these survivors from some unnamed disaster uh, congregate together and come out of their um, come out of their rooms and suddenly the entire world has um, evaporated around them However, there are some survivors who are slowly coming to the gates of the hotel and start to endanger their new, very kind of prepper-esque universe where they've um, they've paid in order to survive, basically. So it's a fascinating, like, moral parable, completely pandemic-y in its overtone <laughs> as well, a real dystopia. And Jeff Vandermeer has just done an amazing foreword looking at the kind of ego implications as well as the, the class and kind of um, privilege uh, structures that, that, that make it so relevant for today we've had some amazing quotes since this is coming out in may and i think there's something really really special building around and this particular one it feels completely from the future like it was a kind of prophecy that, that that's arrived on the shelf it's really magical it's amazing that all these things just coincide you have 
this and you say White Lotus, but then The Last of Us and Station Eleven exactly. and all these TV shows exactly. and everything. It's amazing, yeah, how prophetic these things can be. And yeah. maybe people realizing. just love hotels. I don't know. So yeah, that, like hotel true. dystopias. That yeah. Yeah. Like, well, what's the what's the um, is it? The ballad, the high, ballad, rise? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a very kind of of that mm. of that ilk absolutely. as well. Absolutely. And Jeff talks about that in his introduction, really interestingly, about how this occupies a really interesting space between something like ballad and something like John Wyndham as well. It's almost a kind of cusp book between yeah. um, those types of speculative fiction and dystopia. Um, so I can't wait for everyone to read that. That's my that's my secret baby coming out. <laughs> <laughs> secret baby, but yeah. are you are you willing to say unfavorite, unfavorite baby, yeah. okay, okay. unfavorite one well, of the babies. Yeah. <laughs> Now we've got to the part of our show where we present our guests with a literary dilemma sent in by one of our listeners. As always, you can find the link on our Instagram uh, and in our Twitter bio as well. Last week's literary dilemma was actually quite controversial in the in the Max Wilkinson episode, so hopefully we can avoid that this week. I don't um, know. Yeah. We'll see. Um, <laughs> I'm intrigued now. Okay. To, yeah, to present you with that question, Ella, um, one of our listeners says, I'm writing a series of short stories and I'm midway through a draft, version three or four at the moment. I limp through the words, editing, rewriting, adding, and taking stuff out. How can I fall back in love or even back in like with my story? Is that possible? So I guess to apply that more specifically to you as an editor, do you ever fall out of love and back in love with the project when you're working on it? How do you deal with that struggle? Have you got any advice for our listener? Well, uh, yeah, I admire, I admire anyone who can who can write a story. First of all, <laughs> so I think you're doing an amazing thing by doing that. Um, I think I think you just you do need breaks sometimes. You need a bit of space. You need to kind of, um, especially if you're in the thick. Or say I'm in the thick of a big nonfiction edit. These can be huge books, and there's so much amazing material and, and kind of archive work being done, or um, you know, it, people crafting a huge narrative over centuries, things like that. And sometimes when you're on the micro level of, of the page um, or working with specific characters. Um, you get so immersed in that that actually it's putting it aside for a few weeks and coming back and looking at the kind of macro narrative can really can really help. And I think if you were writing something creative, again, having a going getting a change of scene if you can, um, printing it out in a, in a different font or something actually sounds weird, but that can often help making it feel foreign to you, like a different person's writing stuff like that can really. Um, yeah, I think every every writer needs needs space from their own work, so I think it's a very normal normal reaction mm-hmm. um, to that. Uh, have you ever had, or which of the favourite editions have was the hardest to to go through that process? Were there anywhere that you did you have to take a moment to step back? Whether that was because of the content or or anything to you know any other? Well, doing um, you know outside favourite editions, I do you know kind of non-fiction yeah. uh, reissues too, and, um, and and they can be quite big, quite complex mm. um, books in their own right sometimes. Um, uh, well, I did this wonderful book, Beryl Gilroy's Black Teacher, um, her memoir of becoming one of the first black teachers in London. Uh, and that was an amazing experience, but but even you know thinking about where to put the photographs in that from our archive, and you know working out how how best to, to you know to, to integrate those and spending time with her own narrative in that that was a, a wonderful thing to do. But I think you need um, you need to sometimes look at it with fresh eyes again and, and think you know are these the right places for, for, for these things and how can the reader have the best experience? Well, then let's put it away for a bit and come back and, and have a look at it. Thank you, Anna. Thank you so much for yeah, being a guest on our podcast. Just before you go, we'd like to ask one final question. Uh, we we would like to yeah finish the podcast by asking you what was the last great thing you've read or watched. Any recommendations for our mm-hmm. for our listeners? Well, maybe I'll try. I'll try and be contemporary for once. Uh, <laughs> not not something from from the twenties. Uh, what about very much recently? Well, um, um, there's a book called Tomorrow, Perhaps the Future by Sarah Watling. Uh, which is an amazing group biography of 
uh, various, uh, mainly women, but some men as well, who went out to fight for their beliefs in the Spanish Civil War. And it is an incredible tapestry of um, forgotten voices and overlooked. Um, I mean, lots of people know that you know Hemingway and Laurie Lee were out there, but actually, you know, Martha Gellhorn was an incredible force. Uh, Langston Hughes, um, an interesting black nurse called Solaria Key, all of these other figures who, you know, it's an incredible risk. And it's so present today with Ukraine and things like that for these people to have gone out there and fight for a country and that, that wasn't their own and to fight for a cause that they, they believed in. I thought that was an amazing reading experience. So I'd recommend that. Oh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, Ella and Claire Louise Bennett's introduction to The Shutter of Snow is available to read in our latest issue, which is available to purchase on our website. Thank you so much for coming along and chatting with us today, Ella. Um, And you can find us on Instagram at The London Magazine, on Twitter at The London Mag, and on Facebook, it's The London Magazine. Thank you so much, Ella. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.